0: Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Smuggler's Reef by Rick Blaine, aka Harold L. Goodwin. This is the seventh book in the Rick Brandt Science Adventure Story series. This is the first Rick Brandt book published in the new decade of 1950. The story concerns Rick and Scotty stumbling across a cadre of smugglers in New Jersey near Spindrift Island. They employ a newly developed infrared camera to gather evidence against the smugglers and get them arrested. As usual, the guys get themselves into pretty deep trouble pretty quickly. Rick and Scotty are on their own in this adventure, without the support of any of the spender scientists, though they do get a hand from new friends such as the likable old salt Cap Mike and some familiar members of the fourth estate. And now, Smuggler's Reef. Chapter 1. Night Assignment Adventure, Rick Brandt said, is kind of hard to define, because what might be adventure to one person might be commonplace to another. He took a bite of cake and stretched his long legs comfortably. Now you take flying with Scotty. That's the most adventurous thing I do. Mr. and Mrs. Brandt and Jerry Webster looked at Don Scott, the object of Rick's jibe, and waited for his reply. Verbal warfare between the two boys was a usual feature of the evening discussions on the big front porch of the Brant home on Spindrift Island. Scotty was a husky, dark-haired young man, and he grinned lazily. You've proven your own point, he returned. Fine with me is adventure to you, but safe travel to anybody else. I'd say the most adventurous thing you do is drive your car. Mrs. Brandt, an attractive motherly woman, poured another cup of coffee for Jerry Webster. The young reporter had started the discussion by stating wistfully that he wished he could share in some of the Brandt adventures. "'Why do you call Rick's driving adventurous?' she asked. "'The dictionary says so,' Scotty replied. "'One definition of adventure is a remarkable experience.' Hartson Brandt, Rick's scientist father, grinned companionably at his son. I agree with Scotty. Not only is Rick's driving a remarkable experience, but it fits the rest of the definition. The encountering of risks, hazardous enterprise. Jerry Webster rose to Rick's defense. Oh, I don't know. Rick always gets there. Sure he does, Scotty agreed. Of course, his passengers always have nervous breakdowns, but he gets them there. Rick just grinned. He felt wonderful tonight. When he came right down to it, there was nothing that matched being at home with his family in the big house on Spindrift Island. The famous island off the New Jersey coast was the home for the scientific foundation that his father headed, and for the scientist members. It was the home for Scotty, too, and had been since the day he had rescued Rick from danger years before. As junior members of the Foundation, Rick and Scotty had been included in a number of experiments and expeditions. Rick wouldn't have missed one of them, and if opportunity offered, he would go again with just as much eagerness. But it was nice to return to familiar surroundings between trips. More than once during lonely nights and far-off places, his thoughts had turned to evenings just like this one with the family and perhaps a close friend like Jerry gathered on the porch after dinner. Rick Scotty and Barbara Brandt had only recently returned from the South Pacific, where they had vacationed aboard the trawler Tarpon. Barbie had gone off to summer boarding school in Connecticut a few days later. Chada, the Hindu boy who had been with the Brants since the Tibetan radar relay expedition, had said goodbye to the group at New Caledonia and had returned to India. The scientists Zircon, Weiss, and Gordon were away doing research. Suddenly, Rick chuckled. Speaking of adventure, I'll bet the biggest adventure Barbie had on her whole trip to the Pacific was eating rosette sauté at the Governor's Mansion in Noumea. What's that? Jerry asked. Bat, replied Scotty. A very large kind of fruit bat, I guess. Barbie thought it was wonderful, till she found out what it was. Well, I should think so, Mrs. Brant exclaimed. It tasted good. Rick said. Sort of like chicken livers? He grinned. Anyway, I sympathized with Barbie. I felt kind of funny myself when I found out what it was. Hartson Brant, an older edition of his athletic son, looked at the boy reflectively. He knocked ashes from his pipe. Seems to me you've been pretty quiet since you got back, Rick. Lost your taste for excitement, or are you working on something? Working, Rick said. Scientists never rest. We must labor always to push back the frontiers of ignorance. He put a hand over his heart and bowed with proper dramatic modesty. I'm working on an invention that will startle the civilized world. We will now bow our heads in reverent silence while the master tells us all, Scotty intoned. I know, Jerry guessed. You're working on a radar-controlled lawnmower so you can cut the grass while you sit on your porch. Well, that's too trivial for our junior genius here. He's probably working on a self-energizing hot dog that lathers itself up with mustard, climbs into a bun, and then holds a napkin under your chin while you eat it. Scotty objected. Hey, that's not a bad idea, Rick said soberly. But no, that's not it. Of course not. Hartson Brad put in, you see, I happen to know what it is, due to a little invention of my own, an electronic mind reader. Scotty gulped. You didn't tell Mom what happened to those two pieces of butterscotch pie, did you? I wanted her to blame it on Rick. Rick asked unbelievingly, an electronic mind reader? Phew! sure, Dad, what am I working on? A device to penetrate darkness. Rick stared. His father had scored a hit. So he demanded, How did you know that? My new invention, Hartson Brandt said seriously. Oh, and one other clue. Yesterday morning, the mail brought me a bill for a thousand feet of 16 millimeter infrared motion picture film. So that was it, Rick grinned. I hope your new invention told you I asked the film company to send the bill to me and not you. It did. The bill was actually addressed to the Spindrift Foundation. Attention, Mr. Brandt. Since I didn't know which Mr. Brandt it meant, I opened it. Don't worry, Rick. I'll let you pay for it. Thanks, Dad, Rick said. But don't make any sacrifices. You can pay for it if you want. Don't want to, Harts and Brandt replied. I have not the slightest use for motion picture film. Because Rick has the only motion picture camera on the island, Scotty finished. He frowned at his friend. You keeping secrets, huh? Well, I'm not sure it'll work, Rick explained. He hated to brag about an idea and then have it turn out to be a dud. Consequently, he seldom mentioned that he was working on anything until he knew it would be successful. What does the film have to do with penetrating the darkness? Jerry Webster inquired. Rick caught the look of interest on his father's face. Ask Dad, he said. The electronic mind reader probably has told him all about it. Of course. Rick is planning to take movies at night without lights. Jerry looked skeptical. How? Rick stood up. Long as we've started talking about it, I may as well just show you. The others rose, too. As they did, a shaggy little dog crawled out from under Rick's chair where he'd been napping. "'Dismal and I will put the cake away,' Mrs. Brant said. At the sound of his name, the pup rolled over onto his back and played dead. That was his only trick. Rick bent and scratched his ribs in the way the pup liked. "'Go with Mom,' he commanded. "'Come on, the rest of you. Maybe I can get some free advice from the director of the Spindrift Foundation.' Hartson Brant smiled. If you're looking for a technical consultant, Rick, my price is very reasonable. It would have to be, Rick admitted ruefully. I've spent my entire fortune on this thing. Yeah, a whole dollar, Scotty added. Boys' rooms were on the second floor in the north wing of the big house. But where Scotty's was usually neat as a barrack squad room, the result of his service in the Marines, ricks was usually a clutter of apparatus living on spindrift island with the example of his father and the other scientists to follow it was natural he should be interested in science he was more fortunate than most young men with such an interest because he was permitted to use the laboratory apparatus freely and his part-time work as a junior technician gave him spending money with which to buy equipment another source of revenue was his little two-seater plane He was the island's fast ferry service to the mainland. His room was neater than usual at the moment because he had not bothered to connect most of his apparatus after returning from the South Pacific. The induction heater that he used for midnight snacks was in a closet. His automatic window opener was not in use, nor was his amateur radio transmitter. He opened a workbench built into one wall and brought out a motion picture camera. It was a popular make with a type of lens mount that permitted fast switching of lenses. It used 100-foot rolls of 16-millimeter film. He put the camera on the table. Then from a cupboard, he brought out what appeared to be a searchlight mounted on top of a small telescope. That's a snapper-scope, Scotty exclaimed in recognition. Rick nodded. No reason why it shouldn't work very well, Rick, and Brandt said. Jerry Webster sighed excuse my ignorance what's a sniper scope they were used during the last war Scotty explained he picked up the unit and pointed to the light which was about the size and shape of a bicycle headlamp the searchlight throws a beam of black light Rick would call it infrared anyway it's invisible the telescope is actually a special telescopic rifle sight that'll pick up infrared you can use the thing in total darkness Mounted on a rifle and then go looking for the enemy. Since he can't see the infrared, he thinks he's safe. But you can see him through the scope just as though he had a beam of white light on him. I see, Jerry said. Where are the batteries? Rick brought out a canvas-covered case that looked like a knapsack. It had a crank on one side and a pair of electrical connections. It's not a battery, explained. It's a small spring-driven dynamo. Jerry nodded. I get it now. You rig this thing on the camera, which is loaded with infrared film, the film registers whatever the infrared searchlight illuminates, right? Well, that's the idea, Hartson Brandt agreed. But it isn't as simple as that, is it, Rick? Far from it. I have to determine the effective range. Then I have to run a couple of tests to find out what exposure I have to use. Then I have to find the field of vision of the telescope, as compared with the field of the lens. A lot depends on the speed of the film emulsion. That'll limit the range. The searchlight is effective at 800 yards, but I'll be lucky if I could get a picture at a quarter of that. Where'd you get that snopper scope from? Scotty wanted to know. By mail. I read an ad in the magazine that advertised a lot of surplus war equipment, including this. You might have said something about it, Scotty reproached. Rick grinned. You were too busy working on the motorboats i knew you couldn't have two things on your brain at one time since the young man had returned from vacation scotty had been overhauling the engines of the two motorboats that were used along with rick's plane for communication with Whiteside, the nearest town on the mainland i have a book downstairs i think you'll find useful rick Brandt said it gives the comparative data on lenses it may save you some figuring thanks dad I may have to ask your help in working out the mathematics, too. Anyway, he stopped as the phone rang. At a moment, Mrs. Brant called. Jerry! It's your paper! All right. Something must have popped. Jerry ran for the door. Rick hurried after him, Scotty and the scientists following. The Whiteside morning record for which Jerry worked must have had something important come up to phone Jerry on his night off. In the library, Jerry picked up the phone. Webster? Oh, hello, Duke. Where? Well, why can't one of the other guys cover it? Okay. Okay, I'll be on my way in a minute. How about a photographer? Wait, hold the phone. I'll ask him. He turned to Rick. Duke wants to know if you can take your camera and cover a story with me. A trawler went ashore down at Seaford. Rick nodded quick assent. The little daily paper had only one photographer who evidently wasn't available. It wouldn't be the first time he had taken pictures from Duke Barrows, the paper's editor. He'll do it. We're on our way. Jerry hung up. Have to work fast. We start printing the paper at midnight. It's nine now, Scotty said. Rick ran upstairs and opened the case containing his speed graphic, checking to be sure he had film packs and bulbs. Then he snapped the case shut and hurried downstairs with it. Jerry and Scotty were waiting at the door. "'Don't be out too late,' Mrs. Brandt admonished. Dismal whined to be taken along. "'Sorry, boy,' Rick patted the pup. "'We'll be home early, Mom. Want to come along, Dad?' "'Not tonight, thanks,' the scientist replied. "'I'll take advantage of the quiet to catch up on my reading.' In a moment, the three boys were hurrying toward the hook-shaped cove in which the motor boats were moored. Although Spindrift Island was connected to the mainland at low tide by a rocky tidal flat, there was no way for a car to get across. The cove was reached by a flight of stairs leading down from the north side of the island. Elsewhere, the island dropped away in cliffs of varying heights and steepness to the Atlantic. They ran down the stairs and got into the fastest of the two boats. A slim, speedboat built for eight passengers. Rick handed Scotty his camera case and slid in behind the wheel. While Jerry cast off, he started the engine and warmed it up for a moment. Then as Jerry pushed the craft away from the pier, he backed out expertly, spun the boat around, and roared off in the direction of Whiteside Landing. "'Let's have the story!' Scotty shouted above the engine's roar. "'A fishing trawler from seafood ran aground!' Jerry shouted in reply. Duke figures it's an unusual story because those skippers have been going out of Seaford for a hundred years without an accident. There's no reason why one of them should have run onto well-charted ground in clear weather. Scotty squinted at the sky. It's not exactly clear weather. There's a moon just coming up. It's kind of hazy out. Yeah, but you couldn't call it bad weather either, Jerry pointed out. Not from a seaman's viewpoint, anyway. Where did the trawler run aground? Rick asked. On the land that extends out into the sea above Seaford, Jerry replied. It's called Smuggler's Reef. Chapter 2 Captain Mike Jerry's car was an old sedan that had seen better days, but it could still cover ground at a good speed. The Macadam Highway unrolled before the bright headlamps at a steady rate, while the beams illumined alternate patches of woods and small settlements. There were no major towns between Whiteside and Seaford, but there were a number of summer beach colonies, most of them in an area about halfway between the two towns. The highway was little used. Most tourists, and all through traffic, preferred the main trunk highway leading southward from Newark. They saw only two other cars during the short drive. Many months had passed since Rick's last visit to Seaford. He had gone there on a Sunday afternoon to try his hand at surf casting off Million Dollar Row, a stretch of beach noted for its huge abandoned hotels. It was a good place to cast for striped bass during the right season. Smuggler's Reef, he said aloud. Funny that a seaford trawler should go ashore there. It's the best-known reef on the whole coast. Maybe the skipper was a greenhorn, Scotty remarked. Not likely, Jerry said. In seaford, the custom is to pass fishing ships down from father to son. There hasn't been a new fishing family there for the past half-century. You seem to know a lot about the place, Rick remarked. I'll go down pretty often. Fish makes news in this part of the country. Scotty pointed to a sign as they sped over a wooden bridge. Salt Creek. Scotty remembered. Salt Creek emptied into the sea on the north side of Smuggler's Reef. It was called Salt Creek because the tide backed up into it beyond the bridge they had just crossed. He had caught crabs just above the bridge. But between the road and the sea, there was over a quarter mile of tidal swamp filled with rushes and salt marsh grasses through which the creek ran. At the edge of the swamp, where Salt Creek met Smuggler's Reef, stood the old creek house, once a leading hotel and now an abandoned relic. A short distance farther on, a road turned off to the left. A weathered sign pointed towards Seaford. In a few moments, the first houses came into view. They were small and well-kept for the most part. Then the sedan rolled into the town itself, down the single business street which led to the Fish Piers. A crowd waited in front of the red-brick town hall. Jerry swung to the curb. Let's see what's going on. Rick got his camera from the case, inserted a film pack, and stuffed a few flashbulbs into his pocket, and he hurried up the steps of City Hall after Jerry and Scotty. Men, a number of them with weathered faces of professional fishermen, were talking in low tones. A few looked at the boys with curiosity. An old man with white hair and a strong-lined face was seated by the door, whittling on an elm twig. Jerry spoke to him. "'Excuse me, sir. Can you tell me what's going on?' Keen eyes took in the three young men. "'Yes, I can. Any reason why I should.' The old man's voice held the twang peculiar to that part of the New Jersey coast. "'I'm a reporter,' Jerry said. "'Whiteside, morning record?' "'The old man spat into the shrubbery. "'Gonna put in your name that Tom Tyler ran aground on Smuggler's Reef, hey? "'Well, you can put it in, boy, cause it's true. "'But don't make the mistake of calling Tom Tyler a fool, a drunkard, or a poor seaman. "'Cause he ain't any of those things.' "'How did it happen?' Jerry asked. "'Reckon you better ask Tom Tyler.' "'I will,' Jerry said. "'Well, I find him.' INSIDE, SURROUNDED BY FOOLS. Jerry pushed through the door. Rick and Scotty followed. Rick's quick glance took in the people waiting in the corridor, then shifted to a young woman and a little girl. The woman's face was strained and white, and she stared straight ahead with unseeing eyes. The little girl, a tiny blonde, maybe four years old, held tightly onto her mother's hand. Rick had a hunch. He stopped as Jerry and Scotty hurried down the corridor to where voices were loud through an open door. "'Mrs. Tyler?' he asked. The woman's head lifted sharply. Her eyes went dark with fear. "'I can't tell you anything,' she said in a rush. "'I don't know anything.' She dropped her head again and her hand tightened convulsively on the little girls. "'I'm sorry,' Rick said gently. He moved along the corridor very thoughtfully and saw that Jerry and Scotty were turning into the room from which the voices came. Mrs. Tyler might have been angry, upset, tearful, despondent, or defiant over the loss of her husband's trawler. Instead, she had been afraid in a situation that did not exactly appear to call for fear. He turned into the room. There were about a dozen men there. Two were members of the Coast Guard, one a lieutenant and the other a chief petty officer. Two others were state highway patrolmen. Another in a blue uniform was evidently one of the local policemen. The rest were in civilian clothes. All of them were watching, a lean, youthful man who sat ramrod straight in a chair. A stocky man in a brown suit said impatiently, There's more to it than that, Tom. Man, you spent thirty years off smugglers. You'd no more crack up on it than I'd fall over my own damn front porch. I told you how it was, the fisherman said tonelessly. Rick searched his face and liked it. Tom Tyler was around 40, but he looked probably 10 years younger. His face was burned from wind and sun, but was not yet heavily lined. His eyes, grain color, were clear and direct as he faced his questioners. He was a tall man, that was apparent even when he was seated. He had a lean, trim look that reminded Rick of a clean, seaworthy schooner. The boy lifted his camera and took a picture. The group turned briefly as the flashbulb went off. They glared, then turned back to the fisherman again. The town policeman spoke. You know what this means, Tom. You not only lost your ship, but your to lose your license, too. And you'll be lucky if the insurance company doesn't charge you with barotry. I told you how it was, Captain Tyler repeated. The man in the brown suit exploded. Stop being a dad-blasted fool, Tom. You'd expect us to swallow a yarn like that? We know you don't drink. How can you expect us to believe you ran the sea bell ashore while you were drunk? I've got no more to say, Tyler replied woodenly. Jerry turned to Rick and Scotty and motioned toward the door. Rick led the way into the corridor. Are you getting anything out of this? He asked. A little, Jerry said. Let's go out and talk to that old guy again. You know, Scotty said, I've always wanted to see a real news hound in action. Rick dropped the used flash bulb into a convenient ashtray and replaced it with a new one and reset the camera. At least he had one good picture. Tom Tyler, framed by his questioners, had looked somehow like a thoroughbred animal at bay. Outside the door, the old man was still whittling. Get a real scoop there, did you, sonny? He asked Jerry. Sure did, Jerry returned. He leaned against the door jamb. I didn't get your name, though. I didn't give it to you. Will you? Sure, ain't ashamed. I'm Captain Michael Olawicious, Kevin O'Shannon. Call me Captain Mike. All right, Captain Mike. So, true, Captain Tyler, is it true that Captain Tyler stands to lose his master's license and may even be charged with deliberately wrecking his ship? "'Yes, it's true.' "'He says he was drunk.' "'He wasn't.' "'How do you know?' "'Cause I know Tom Tyler.' "'Well, then how did it happen?' Captain Mike rose and clicked his jackknife shut. He tossed away the elm twig. "'You got yourself a car?' "'Yeah.' "'Let's take a ride, then. You'll want to see the wreck, and I do, too. We can talk on the way.' The boys accepted with alacrity. Rick and Scotty sat in the back seat, and the captain rode up front with Jerry. At the old man's direction, Jerry drove to the waterfront and then turned left. I'll start at the beginning, said Captain Mike. I've had experience with reporters in midday. Best to tell them everything, otherwise, they start leaping at conclusions and getting everything backwards. Can't credit a reporter with too many brains. You're right there. Jerry said amiably. Rick grinned. He had seen Jerry in operation before. The young reporter didn't mind any kind of insult if there was a story in the offing. Rick guessed the newspaper trade wasn't a place with thin skins. Well, here are the facts, the sea captain continued. Tom Tyler, master and owner of the Seabell, was coming back from a day's run. He'd had a good day. The trawler was practically awash with a loan of Manhattan. "'In case you don't know, Manhattan are fish. "'Not eaten fish, but commercial. "'They get oil and chicken and cattle feed from them. "'and the trawlers out of this port "'collect them by the millions of tons every year.' "'We know,' Jerry said. "'Aha!' "'As I said, the trawler was full up with Manhattan. "'Tom was at the wheel himself. "'The rest of the crew, five of 'em, was making snug. "'There was a little weather making up. "'Not much.' but enough to interfere with Tom seeing the light at the tip of Smuggler's Reef. He saw it clear. He admits it. Now. All you do is give the light a few fathoms clearance to the starboard. But Tom didn't. And what happened? He ran smack onto the reef, Scotty put in. He surely did. The crew, all of them being aft, didn't see a thing. First they knew they were flying through the air like a bunch of hooked mackerel and banging into net gear. One broken arm, a load of cuts and bruises among them. The trawler tore her bottom out and rested high and dry, scattering fish like a fertilizer spreader. Tom Tyler said he took one drink and it went to his head. The old man snorted. It's bilge, sheer bilge. He said hitting the reef sobered him up. Maybe it did, Jerry ventured. Hogwash. There wasn't a mite of drink on his breath. And what did he drink? There ain't nothing could make an old hand like Tom forget where a light was supposed to be. No, the whole thing is fishy as a bin of herring. The boys were silent for a moment after the recital. Then Rick blurted out the question in his mind. What is his wife afraid of? The captain stiffened. Who says she's afraid? I do, Rick returned positively. I saw her. You did. Well, I reckon you saw right then. Maybe she's afraid of Tyler losing his way of making a living, Scotty guessed. Rick shook his head. No, it wasn't that kind of fear. The sedan had left the town proper and was rolling along the seafront on a wide highway. This was Million Dollar Row. In a moment, Rick saw the first of the huge hotels that had given the road its name. It was called Sandy Shores. Once it had been landscaped and probably beautiful. Now he saw in the dim moonlight the windows were shuttered and the grounds had gone back to bunch grass. The paint had peeled in the salt air and there was an air of decay and loneliness around the old dark place. Setting up the drive were the sea girt, the Atlantic view, shore mansions and finally the creek house, all in similar condition. The hotels had been built in the booming 20s when the traditional sleepiness of Seaford had been disturbed by a rush of tourists. Then had come the business depression of the thirties, and the tourists had stopped coming. They had never started again. The hotels were too expensive to operate, and useless as anything but hotels. They had been left to rot. Briefly during World War II, they had served as barracks for a Coast Guard shore patrol base, but that activity was long past now and they had been left to decay once more. There were a number of cars on the road going both ways. Captain Mike remarked on the fact. They're curious about the Rick. Usually not a car moves on this road. As they approached Smuggler's Reef, the cars got thicker. Then Rick saw lights in the massive creek house. It was one of the biggest of the hotels, and it had been the most exclusive. It had its own dock on Salt Creek, and it was protected from prying eyes, by a high board fence. Two rooms on the second floor were lit. It's occupied, Captain Mike affirmed. Family name of Kelso's renting it. Claim they need the salt hair and water for their boy. He's ailing. Must be a big family, Scotty said. Oh, they don't use all of it, just a couple of bedrooms in the kitchen. No one knows much about them, and they don't seem to work at anything. City folks. Keep to themselves. Rick guessed from the note of irritation in Captain Mike's voice that he resented the Kelso's evident desire for privacy. Probably he had tried to satisfy his curiosity about them and had been rebuffed. Jerry pulled up in front of the hotel and stopped the car. The boys piled out, anxious for a glimpse of the trawler. Rick crossed the road and looked out to sea. Smuggler's Reef was a gradually narrowing arm of land that extended over a quarter mile out into the sea. In front of the hotel it was perhaps two hundred yards wide. Then it narrowed gradually until it was a little more than a wall of piled boulders. On its north side, Salt Creek emptied into the sea. Beyond the creek was the marsh with its high grasses. At the tip of the reef, a light blinked intermittently. That was the light that Tyler had failed to keep on his starboard beam. A few hundred feet this side of it was a moving cluster of flashlights. It was too dark to make out details, but Rick guessed the lights were at the wrecked trawler. "'Got your camera?' Jerry asked. Rick held it up. "'Then let's go. Time is getting short. I have to get the story back.' With Captain Mike leading the way, surprisingly light on his feet for his age, the boys made their way out along the reef. A short distance before they reached the wreck, they passed a rusted steel framework. Used to be a light tower, Captain Mike explained briefly. They put up the new light on the point a few years back and put in an automatic system. This light had to be tended. At the wreck, they found almost two dozen people. Flashlights picked out the trawler. It had driven with force right up onto the reef, ripping out the bottom and dumping thousands of dead Manhattan into the water. They lay in clusters around the wreck, floating on the water in silvery shoals. The air was heavy with the reek of fish and spilled diesel oil. There was little conversation among those who had come to visit the wreck. When they did talk, it was in low tones. Rick thought it was strange, because anything like this was usually a field day for self-appointed experts, who discussed it in loud tones and offered opinions to all who would listen. Then as he lifted his camera for a picture, he saw the men look up, startled at the flash. He saw them turn their backs quickly so their faces would not be seen if he were to take another picture. He sensed tension in the air and his lively curiosity quickened. This was no ordinary wreck. Something about it had brought fear. Or was it that the fear had brought the wreck? "'Let's go,' Jerry said. "'We got a deadline to make.' Rick lay awake and stared through the window at the darkness. Jerry had the pictures and story, and there seemed to be nothing else to do except to cover the hearing that would follow. The results were a foregone conclusion. Trawler Skipper admits he ran ship aground while drunk. Case closed. Again, Rick saw the fear written in Mrs. Tyler's face. Again, he sensed the tension among the men who gathered at the wreck and he believed Captain Mike had left some things unsaid in spite of his apparent frankness. Scotty, he whispered. Scotty's voice came low through the connecting door. I'm asleep. Same here. Let's go fishing tomorrow. Okay, I know where the blackfish will be running. Do you? Where? Rick grinned sleepily as Scotty's whisper came back off Smuggler's Reef.